Welcome to Indie Cider, where we go beyond the game and meet the developers behind today's indie hits. Welcome to the Indie Cider Podcast. My name is Ken Gagney, and I'm your host. This is the fifth week of the month, which means you get a bonus episode, but it's also December 31st, which means it's the end of calendar year 2014. And what better time than to look back at the indie games of the year? And what better way to do it than by inviting some of my best friends onto the show, none of whom know each other. Let me introduce Mr. Matt Kahn. Hello, Matt. Howdy. Matt, you are the founder of annual convention GamerX, now known as GX. You were in the documentary Gaming in Color. And if I understand correctly, you have your own development studio called Midboss Games, which in 2015 will be releasing read-only memories. Is that correct? Yes. So I'm learning all the fun and, uh, and hardships of making your own indie game. So uh, I, I can now much better uh, give a, a fair and impartial view on, on how hard people work on these games. And of course, it is impartial because your game didn't come out this year. Otherwise, of course, that would be the best game of the year. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I was like, how can we, how can we fit ROM into 2014? But um, unfortunately, it is not coming out this year, so it will not be on this list. But you did release a demo, is that correct? Yeah, and it's actually been really helpful to, um, you know, I think that, you know, something that was, that's cool about releasing a game nowadays is by releasing a, a demo, um, getting out beta builds, we've really been able to uh, change the game around and make it better. Uh, based on feedback as opposed to getting it out there and you know getting a bad review and then uh, being like, oops. Awesome. Well, I look forward to Read Only Memories being my favorite indie game of 2015. Let's hope. <laughs> <laughs> also joining us is my friend Sabriel Mastin. Hello, Sabriel. Hi there. Sabriel, you are a freelance writer for Indie Haven and Indie Chick, is that correct? Indie Gamer Chicken, actually, not writing there anymore, but Indie Haven, yes. Excellent. So those are definitely on your resume, and you also have a YouTube channel. I do. <laughs> I'm still expanding that and working on um, getting that out there. Well, I, I love the content you're putting out there, and I have visited your website, which is at sabriel.me, and it's it's fun to see all the different kinds of stuff you're trying, because I'm sort of in the same boat of just trying to find my foothold in the indie industry. And also joining us is Emma Clarkson. Hello, Emma. Hey, Ken. How's it going? Good, thanks. How are you? Doing well. Now, Emma, what exactly is your title as it pertains to the Boston Festival of Indie Games, or Boston Fig? Um, I was the director of marketing and media efforts for the 2014 festival, and um, I don't know how confirmed this is, but I think I'm going to be coming back as a community manager uh, for the coming festival year as well. And what will that entail? Um, just doing all the social media communications, uh, keeping the news getting out as far as we can get it to our audience, and just making sure people know what kind of cool content the festival has in store. And that will be different from what you did as director of marketing? Uh, I'm sort of scaling back a little bit with a full-time load doing contract work for indie game developers as well as a content design position with one company. Um, you know, I just can't commit quite as much time as I committed this past summer. So it's just kind of switching roles actually with um, someone who worked for me this past year who is likely to be taking that role next year. That's right. Speaking of your contract work, I believe one of your clients is a former guest of this show, Miss Jenna Hofstein. Yes, uh, Jenna Hofstein of Little Worlds Interactive. Uh, I thought long and hard about whether to sneak her game, The Counting Kingdom, onto my list. It's not exactly for this target audience being a kid's educational math game, but um, working for her is fantastic and it's very representative of the Boston indie scene as a whole. Excellent. Well, we have a wide swath of gamers on the show today across all Throughout the country, Emma and I being in the Boston area, Sabriel being in North Dakota, and Matt being in San Francisco. 
with three different geographic regions, we are going to be looking at three different platforms of games that we played indie games on this year. We have mobile, desktop, and console. And we consider breaking it down into other categories like best graphics, best sound, best gameplay, best narrative. But it is not always fair to compare, say, a mobile game to a console game. And we figured we should compare apples to apples and not, say, apples to Volkswagens. So why don't we start small and build our way up with the mobile market? Uh, let's see. Sabriel, would you like to start with some of the games that you played in the mobile space this year? Yeah, absolutely. This is a really interesting category for me because I don't like a lot of mobile games. And that's where most indies are. Usually their um, platformers on mobile games don't work for me very well because I need the buttons context, like um, on a DS or 3DS. But one game actually stood out for me this year. Revolution 60 by Brianna Wu. We all play that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I played a demo at Boston Fig 2013, but I unfortunately have not gotten around to playing the final version, which if Brianna hears this, she'll probably kill me for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, this one really, really um, got me interested. It's not too fast-paced, like um, a lot of platformers or action games. Very story-driven as well. And I just really couldn't put it down. I had a lot of fun with this one. Have you been able to finish it? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, I think I sat down over the course of three days sitting on my floor and just plowed right through it. And how many hours did that take you? I want to say six to seven hours total, but um, I kind of lollygagged here and there too. That's a pretty good investment for a game to return. It is a free game with in-app purchases, is that correct? Uh, Yeah, it's free to try out. You get about an hour or two of playtime, and then if um, it really entices you and you like the story, you can pay to continue to be able to finish it. Ah, that's right. I see that the in-app purchase is unlock full game for $4. Right, right. So $4 for six hours, that's pretty good. Absolutely. Emma, since this game has been at Boston Fig, have you played it? Um, yeah, I actually have been playing Revolution 60 since its development stage. I was on the test flight, and it's a pretty amazing um, achievement for the mobile platform. Uh, it's one of the first games using Unreal Engine 4 for mobile game development, so... I think it's very representative of a point I wanted to make today, which is that it's pretty hard having these hard category lines because there is so much more gray area between these um, platforms now. And you have much higher quality games ending up on the mobile platform where they have a much wider audience reach. And then you also have, you know, the small indie efforts being able to make that connection to the console, uh, you know, online stores and things like that. I think it's really definitive of games this year is that that gray area between platforms. Right, right. Matt, did you get around to trying this game? No, you know, I actually was watching the trailer for it the other day, and um, it actually kind of, it, it really caught my eye. You know, I, I I think that when I was looking at screenshots, you know, for it, it didn't um, really catch catch me. Um, it didn't really look like my kind of game, but after watching, the, uh, I was actually on her Patreon, and I was watching the trailer for it, and uh, it finally kind of caught my interest. Um, I didn't realize it had a lot of the Mass Effect style choices, uh, branch trees. Um, as an, someone who's making an adventure game, I appreciate any game that has branch trees and uh, different, you know, uh, storyline choices like that. So, and I also, I, I saw a little bit of like, the gameplay reminded me uh, from the trailer a little bit of like Mega Man Battle Network for Game Boy Advance with like, the way that you fight is like, it's kind of grid based, sort of. But yeah, I mean, I, I definitely need to try it, especially, uh, especially now. Um, but yeah, I, ha- I haven't given it a shot yet. 
It's actually a good example of how small the Boston game industry really is because Jenna Hofstein of Little Worlds Interactive was the designer who did the majority of that combat system on a contract basis for um, Giant Space Cat when they were developing Revolution 60. Yeah, I heard an interview with Jenna about that on a recent episode of Less Than or Equal, and I believe next month at the Women in Games Boston group, I'm going to be moderating a panel about parenting in the gaming industry, and one of my panelists will be Amanda Warner, who was the lead animator for this game. So yeah, it's all very incestuous. <laughs> um, and, and so I saw on her Facebook, she said that she's working on Revolution 62. So is there a 61 that I missed? Or is that a... <laughs> uh, no, no, that's the sequel to Revolution 60. Oh, okay. It's kind of a little play on R60 and then R62. What's the... Yeah, I don't get, I don't get the, the play <laughs> on uh, It's just a sequel. It start, ends with a 2. Oh, I get it. Revolution 62. <laughs> Right, right. Oh. <laughs> wow, it's funnier when you have to explain the joke. Of course, of course. Thank you, Sabriel. Uh, but before Revolution 62 comes out, I believe she is also doing a PC port, and she has mentioned how she'll be tweaking the character models to represent more diversity in body shapes and sizes. I think she's been toying with that idea, but I'm not sure if she's actually going to do it for the PC release of Rev60. But definitely for Rev 62. Right. I, I know that f- since they're starting from scratch for Revolution 62, they have more options. And with Revolution 60, you, a game that's already built, you can't just take a character model that's already been defined and just swap it in or out with something else. So I think they're going to be playing with the parameters and adjusting it maybe a little bit. But you're right that the uh, models that are in the game now, Revolution 60 on mobile... I think Brianna said that she basically just made characters that she could identify with. And as a tall, thin woman, that's what you see in the game. But they're going to strive for more diversity in future games. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a little conflicted on that because, you know, I know that that was something that the Gamergate people were trying to come after her for and being like, well, well, you know, how can you criticize games if your game only has this one, you know, figure? And they're trying to kind of use, like, social justice themes kind of against her. And while I agree that, you know, games should have... A diverse cast. I think that you know, if this is her story that she wants to tell, and this is her art form, she should do what she feels, not not do it because of uh, whether it be pressure from any side. You know, I, I mean, if if that's what she wants to do, and she wants to, you know, represent you know more different character, you know, different characters, I think that's one thing. But I worry that it's coming from pressures as opposed to artistic uh, desire. I know Brie in real life in the Boston area again, and, you know, knowing the kind of person she is, I'm pretty sure it's not coming from any kind of pressure, but really from just a desire to learn and grow and keep taking in new feedback and hearing other people's perspectives. And to her, you know, she may have felt that she was really pushing the expression on one area, but may realize that she hadn't covered a whole other area and only through player feedback and communication through her, um, you know, her fairly diverse audience of, of Twitter followers, I think she's really forced herself to open and listen and, and be ready to learn. So I see it more like she's adjusting her own course as opposed to caving into any kind of pressure. Okay. Yeah, I would agree with that. Brianna was on a panel I moderated at PAX East 2014, and she told me that she walked away from that panel aware of stereotypes that were just not on her radar at all. And she went back to her studio and started thinking about how she needs to design character models in Revolution 62 with this new awareness. I don't think it was that she was, you know, ditching her dream to please the masses. That doesn't seem like something she would do. 
Wow, a lot of discussion off just one game. Thanks, Abriel. <laughs> no problem. Emma, what was one of your mobile picks for the year? So my two big mobile picks are a little bit lazy because they were both recently named apps of the year by Apple. So they're um, Threes by Servo and also Monument Valley by Us2. And I loved both of these games for really different reasons. Threes has kind of become my go-to. You have a minute of time to fill. What are you going to do with it? And I pull up Threes and, and do you know either an entire match or some of a match. I feel like it's working out my brain, which is a nice feeling. When playing video games, it's good to, to feel like it's actually making you think instead of just tapping into that entertainment center. Um, I think it has a great package around it, too. Just super cute art, really nice sounds and music um, for something that is essentially just a grid of numbers. I think they, they took a lot of effort to make it a great delivery. Um, Monument Valley, if you aren't familiar with it, I, I really can't recommend it enough. I played it. It was one of the first games I played on my iPad Air. It's just completely beautiful. It's really smooth. It's a great um, game for this platform. It's like perfect for touchscreen, perfect for holding a screen in front of you and interacting with it a little more intimately than you do with a PC game. Um, it has really cool art style, just really simple and kind of haunting. And then the story that goes with it is this really sort of sad but beautiful story that is told without any text whatsoever. So I think that's one of the biggest accomplish accomplishments of that game is telling this really engaging, sweet story without making you read anything. And I love to read, so don't get me wrong, but I, I think this was really a huge achievement um, from us too. So I find it hard to pick one of those two uh, because they were both really amazing in, in really different areas. So I, I give it to both of them at the same time. I've been hearing a lot about both of these games. I haven't played either one, though. Threes, is it similar or identical with the web-based game 2048? Yes, and I'm, I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure Threes is kind of the original. And 2048 sort of blew up in the press, and there were hundreds of clones in both the iPhone App Store and also on um, Google Play. Uh, you know, 2048, different variations on that, but... Threes, to me, is a more quality product than what I've seen from the other ones. And I do think that it was the first one with this sliding, adding tile idea, and that when other people saw it, they just, you know, it was a race to see how many clones could get out there and who could promote theirs the highest. So I definitely recommend checking out Threes if you've never played it. So it is both the first and the best. I think so. Um, I, there's something to me about them being multiples of threes that actually make it more challenging than being multiples of like, like even numbers entirely. But that's just me. Um, again, I really like the sort of math workout. It feels like it's giving my brain. Um, and yeah, and Monument Valley, you know, released an expansion of levels later this year. So they're continuing to support that product too. And I, I think it's a great representation of like a premium product on the App Store. So I'd love to see more of that coming out. So between threes and the Counting Kingdom, you really seem to have a fixation on addition and multiplication. <laughs> they serve very different purposes, too. I mean, you know, working on the Counting Kingdom for a little while, we were trying to sort of put this spin of, oh, it's fun for everyone, but it's truly designed for children. It was designed with six to eight-year-olds in mind and, and as a learning tool as well. I'm not sure I would ever recommend threes as a learning tool, but it's great if you don't really do math very often you can kind of turn your brain off, but at the same time, somewhere the back of your brain is still working to uh, to think through these puzzles. And it's pretty challenging, too. I feel like this year has had a lot of games that just go there in terms of 
level of difficulty and expecting the player to adapt and learn or just keep failing over and over again. Matt or Sabriel, have you played either of these games? You know, I haven't played um, Monument Valley. Wait, you said Monument Valley, right? Yes. Yeah, I haven't played that, although it's definitely something that um, I want to play as, uh, as well as Mountain, which was the other thing, the game I was thinking of, which um, I've gotten a good chance to check it out, and it's got some very interesting things to it. Um, threes I'm a big fan of, um, and, uh, you know, disclosure, uh, 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 Asher, uh, the creator of it, is actually a sponsor of GamerX, uh, but uh, I was a fan of it before he sponsored GamerX, and, uh, you know, I, I, I think I played 2048 first, or 2064 first, but... The three, what I really like about threes was the, the characters. I mean, mm-hmm. there weren't really characters, but like, they all have very cute, very like, kawaii, like, you know, faces to all the numbers, and they make really cute noises, and, um, you know, I think that's something that's really missing from, you know, with 2048, it's just the game, but with threes, you have this really amazing art and sound direction that takes it from being a fun concept to actually being a fun game. Yeah, the characters on the number tiles is, really really cute and every time you achieve a new highest number so if you if you make the combination for you know 20 well it wouldn't be 2048 for whatever whatever high number it almost it's almost like it's unlocking a new character that you're going to see when you make that number now so again it's taking this number based game and giving it a personality and a, you know aesthetic appeal that it's kind of like if you were doing a school project and you did everything that was asked of you but you didn't really go above and beyond. Like, Threes really goes above and beyond and would get an A-plus for me if it was a school project. You know, I hadn't played Threes because I figured it was the same as 2048 and I already got the concept, but you guys are making it sound like I'm actually missing out on a lot that goes on around the core gameplay, so now I really want to go check it out. Matt, finally, what about you and your mobile games? You know, it's tough because I think that a lot of the mobile games that I really enjoyed this year that that would qualify as indie games... Most of them really were basically ports of older games. So, you know, we, there's, there's, uh, the port of Papers, Please to iOS, the port of Thomas Was Alone, you know, mentioned threes. But, you know, for me, I didn't really find a lot to play on mobile this year, which, you know, I th- is, uh, a little disappointed. I, I was really getting into some odd games for Android last year. Uh, like Devil's Attorney, which I thought was really fun. Um, and I didn't really seem to find a lot of those those games this year. Um, and a lot of games that uh, I did play on Android ended up being uh, what I would consider more uh, single-A or triple-A games, you know, whether it be something like Wolf Among Us or, or stuff like that, which so I don't really think that would, that would qualify for the indie side. So you're just saying that all the indie games suck and you don't like any of them? <laughs> yeah, uh... No, I mean, I just, you know, I, I, I've really come to enjoy playing indie games on um, the bigger screen. Uh, I feel like when I'm playing a game on mobile, I usually like to... The games that I really enjoy on mobile, I feel are... Uh, they have some sort of social uh, ability on it, you know, and, and usually the, the games that, that do the social really well usually have a bigger budget. So, you know, I, I get more into my indie fix from, from Steam, I feel like. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. The App Store, I'm not as familiar with Android, but the iTunes App Store is definitely dominated by the free-to-play model, mostly from companies with a pretty solid budget that covers user acquisition. And, you know, the formula there is the idea that the more people you bring in, the more people they will bring in. 
But on the indie side, you see so much more um, sort of deep and interesting single player style gameplay that doesn't rely on that social connection quite as much. Um, so, yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I think it's a really good reason to, you know, expand to as many platforms as possible just to see what people are doing everywhere. So, Matt, basically, you have no nominations this year. Why are you on this podcast? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, you know, uh, mm, 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 uh, I would, you know, I would do- I would nominate threes, but but that already got nominated. And Thomas was alone and, and Papers, Please both came out. Prior to this year, uh, before they got mobile ports, so yeah, no, ridiculous fishing came out last. No, it came out last year. Yeah, I guess I have no nominations. There are no games that were created this year. There were any good. <laughs> you are the weakest link. Goodbye. <laughs> How about desert golfing? I haven't played that. I like golf games though. Now, if Steve Lubitz was on this show, he'd be all over that. Yeah, he's a pretty big fan of that game. Me too, actually. Um, what hole have you made it up to? I think I'm up in the 500s now. I play it very casually, but, uh, well, 500, whole 500, and it's casual, but <laughs> <laughs> here and there, just kind of plug away at it. Yeah, that's something that it has in common with threes, that if you're in line at the grocery store, you can just pop it out and play it for a minute and then put it back away and you're pick right back up where you left off next time. Yeah, you know, I, I've let, earlier this year I started playing a game um, that uh, have you, there's, a, there's a company called Cat Daddy Games. They basically, uh, they, they took this, they made this card game. They ended up just, uh, reskinning for a bunch of 2K franchises. So they have like a NHL 2K super card and WWE super card. And I really enjoy it because it's really, really basic. It's something that you can play in like less than 15 seconds around. Um, and I really enjoy that in that, like, you know, if I'm just waiting in line, I can just pop it out, play it, uh, you know, get a couple cards and then put it back down. But, uh, again, I don't know if that would really qualify in the indie category. Well, hey, if you say it counts, Matt, who am I to argue? Matt, ask me what my favorite mobile game was. Hey, Ken, what was your favorite mobile games that were indie in the year 2014? I'm so glad you asked, Matt. <laughs> you know, I'm not just the moderator. I'm also a gamer. <laughs> I am unique in the tech crowd for not having a smartphone, actually. I don't have an iPhone, an Android, a BlackBerry, or anything like that. I have an old flip phone, which suits my needs just fine. So when I want to play a mobile game, I'm historically, I have been playing it on my iPod Touch, which is 5th gen, the latest model, iOS 8. But it's such a darn small screen, and I have this you know, 50-inch HD TV sitting a few feet away. I'd much rather play a game on that. So I recently bought an iPad mini to play some of these games on a slightly larger screen, and the specific game that motivated that purchase is my mobile game of the year, which is Framed from Love Shack Entertainment. just came out last month. Anybody tried it yet? Not me. It's on my list. <laughs> yeah, it's like a interactive graphic novel, and you are moving the panels around to change the flow of action. So as the character runs from the top of the page to the bottom or from the left side of the page to the right, you determine in which order he runs through the panels and you're trying to get him to avoid the police officers or to pick up the suitcase with the stolen goods or to avoid falling to his death or to make an escape it's not really a choose your own adventure because there's usually a right solution and a wrong solution you have to find the right answer to advance to the next page of the story and i just like monument valley i love this approach to storytelling that is completely free of text and dialogue I think it's very evocative and very accessible. I love the 
art style. I grew up reading comic books, not so much noir, which is the genre that this is going for, sort of like a 1940s, 1950s Dixon Hill and Sam Spade kind of thing. But the style of silhouettes for all the characters, they're just black characters with white highlights like on their hat or their beard or their tie. I think it is a really great art style and the soundtrack is awesome too. I mean, this game is the full package and I hope that they bring it to other platforms. I could see it working on desktop, which they say it's coming to in 2015, or also on the Wii with its easy point and click interface, maybe not so much PS4 or Xbox One, but it's just a a great idea. And when I interviewed the developer, we were both kind of surprised that nobody had done this before. The nearest thing I could think of was Comics Zone, which came out for Sega Genesis like 20 years ago and wasn't even a puzzle game, which this is. So it's just, I, I like games that are doing things I haven't seen before, and Framed really fits that bill. That game was a puzzle game. I mean, the puzzle, the controls were a puzzle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I blew it. <laughs> a for effort, Matt. <laughs> now, I never actually played Comic Zone. I was not a Sega kid growing up. Oh, the game is so worth, worth emulating. <laughs> of, of course, you have to legally own the cartridge in order to emulate it. But is there, is, there should be some sort of moral clause that if a game's like 20 years old, they're like because it's art at that point <laughs> well you know there is the uh the living console or the living game console or the living room console whatever it's called by the internet archive they recently produced this web-based javascript-based port of m-e-s-s the multi-system emulator and now you can play all these old games right in your browser without installing any plugins so maybe i should take a look at comic zone i think that their approach to copyright is that they leave it up until somebody tells them to take it down, and then they do. Mm. So better to ask for forgiveness than permission. You can mail Sega a $5 gift card. Right, <laughs> which is how much you would spend to buy a used copy at GameStop. <laughs> right, right. You know, if they still had Sega Genesis games. <laughs> uh, I, don't know, I guess you'd have to go to Funko Land for that. Oh, well. <laughs> Babbage's. Oh, Babbage's. I worked at Software Etc. back before it got bought out. All three of those now owned by GameStop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just swooping them all up. I worked at Blockbuster, too, so there's a blast from the oh, past. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, Emma, that's something we... No, we worked at GameStop, right? Yes. I've never worked at Blockbuster, but I have served time as a game advisor at GameStop. I think it should be required for anyone working in the game industry to see it from the other side. It also is a great compliment to being a member of the press, because if you ever need to write about a game, you just borrow it from work and bring it home. (laughs) Yep. You just have to pretend that you're not actually doing that and make sure corporate never notices. But uh, but yeah, I I collected (laughs) all of the last generation consoles with my employee discount, as well as a pretty huge game collection, and I definitely played things I never would have played because of the benefit of being able to borrow them, which is, you know, pretty awesome when you're trying to balance out a retail job as your lifestyle. Ah, oh, retail. Oh, retail. <laughs> yeah, we've all done our time. Yep. All right. Oh, Sabriel, where were you in retail? I worked at Walmart. Oh, fun. Yeah, I was there for the PS3 launch and the Vita launch and the Wii launch. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was, it was a while ago now, but... And you were working in the, like, AV section? Actually, I worked as, um, I guess, equivalent of a head cashier, but I was all over the place overnight. Wow. I do not envy that. (laughs) All right, let's move on to our next platform of choice. There's a lot of synergy, a lot of crossover between mobile and desktop, and by desktop we mean Windows, Mac, and Linux. So let's go into that category next. Matt, you ended the last round, so would you like to start this one? Uh, sure. So... 
we're talking about indie games for PC and Mac. Correct. And Linux. Yes. Especially Steam. That seems to be one of the primary purveyors of indie games these days. What games really got me this year? You know, uh, I really was a big fan of Jazz Punk. I don't know if anyone's played that this year. Um, I haven't even heard of it. Oh, okay. So Jazz Punk is this, like, kind of weird, cyberpunky comedy game that came out uh, halfway through the year. I got to play it at uh, an IGN event at GDC the year prior, and it's just really weird. Uh, there's, like, parts of the game where you go into, like, a, a china shop, and you're just, like, breaking, gla- like, vases for no reason uh, with, like, fly swatter, and um, you have to, like, collect, like, spiders. You can throw it on a chef. But, like, it's all, like, very bizarre and the music is bizarre and the graphics are bizarre and um it's very funny it's short but it's only like 15 bucks it's really fun it's really different uh so i would say that jazz punk is definitely up there you know i'm trying to think of what i'm looking at my list of games and it's like well i'm not sure if that came out this year (laughs) um so uh i finally got my hands on gone home this year but i know that that did not come out this year but that was obviously uh an amazing experience, and I'm, I'm really glad that I finally got my chance to get into that. Yeah, you know, uh, I feel like most of the, the, the games I, I really gelled with um, were more browser-based, um, and most of them, I think, were, were actually on the console, I think, in terms of the indie scene, but I really enjoyed uh, stuff like Jazz Punk. Uh, Fragments of Him was really cool, uh, and that's a game that like kind of deals with... Uh, uh, a couple that, and then a guy who's like kind of dealing with the loss of his husband. Um, yeah, I mean, because I, I really enjoy uh, browser-based games that are kind of made in like a game jam or made within a week or two. Because usually, I feel like those have more ambitious ideas, and while they may not be complete games, they I feel like the message they try to get out is is more complete, and it's not trying to go for uh, more of like a cookie cutter. How's this going to sell? experience. Yeah, I don't know that I've played many games that came out of a game jam. I'm certainly a fan of the concept, and I think it's a great place to prototype and then work on stuff that can become a full game, kind of like NaNoWriMo is just intended not to produce quality. You can produce crap as long as you produce something. And I I like that game jams are sort of the NaNoWriMo of the video game world. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, game jams and browser game engines like Twine have made it a lot easier to come up with an idea and then have a game from that idea like in very little time, which is a totally different model than traditional game design where everything has to be flexible based on what's going to work with the design. And it could be literally years between the idea and the actual release. But, you know, game jam games are made in 48 hours or less. And I think you get a lot more raw emotion and feeling behind the ideas in some of those formats. Yeah, I'm trying to think. There's a game that came out. Curtain. Oh, by Dreamfeel. Yeah. 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 So Curtain is a game where you uh, you play as, I, I believe, uh, a woman in, uh, you're basically, it's this really, really low res in terms of the music and the art and it's, it's everything feels really different. I don't know how to explain it, but it feels very dreamlike and you basically are kind of learning about this relationship with your girlfriend and you're, you're doing it through, you know, exploring your home and around your apartment. And you're kind of going forward and back in time and seeing emails from your family and, you know, phone calls and uh, kind of looking at the way that the house is rearranged. And, you know, you go to the shower and you have different thoughts. And um, 
you know, there's no, there's no like conflicts resolution, you know, or like there's no uh, gameplay elements in that end, but it's uh, a really interesting and touching story. And uh, I really enjoyed going through it and the music and the, the visuals really spoke to me. Uh, and it's, it's, it's relatively short. It's about half an hour. Um, but it kind of, you know, blurs the window between like queer stuff and like punk and, and kind of music and, you know, what that, the price of fame looks like and kind of being in an emotionally abusive relationship. And, um, it's interesting and in kind of the way it tells that story. It's kind of, uh, I wouldn't say it's a very happy story, but it's, uh, it's not morbidly depressing. So it's not, it's not going to make you break down, but it's, it's pretty sad. It's, it's, it's good. I like it a lot. I just played that game for the first time about three days ago, actually, and I was appreciative that this game demonstrated that there are kinds of abusive relationships that aren't physical. I think that flies under the radar for a lot of people. Yeah, um, you know, I, I think it, it did a good job of not being too heavy-handed with, with how it, it, you know, showed how this person that, she, that you're with uh, is really very controlling and tries to control you by you know, not necessarily, you know, hitting you or doing anything physical, but just kind of making you feel worthless and making it feel like your successes were their successes and you wouldn't have them without them. And if you were to leave them, you would lose everything. And, you know, I, I feel like there's a lot of, it, it doesn't seem like this was written from thin air. It seems like it's coming from some sort of truth. Um, and it definitely shines through in the writing. All right. What about you, Emma? What are some of your favorite computer games this year? So this is definitely my focus platform, so I've got a little bit of a long list here. One that I really loved just as a, a really enjoyable game experience was Banished, which came out earlier this year and is a uh, sort of a city-building strategy sim game um, set in kind of a rustic, folksy, uh, woodsy environment. You know, the idea being that you have a small group of settlers who have been banished from somewhere else and they have to make it work in their new home. And I really loved how punishing and challenging it was. Again, I mentioned that before, but, uh, you know, this is, if you're used to this kind of game, you might think that like, oh, you know, you can just kind of go with it and see what you need to do. But like in Banished, if you don't do everything you need to do before the first fall, all your people will die and then they won't thrive at all. So it's, it's a great game for, you know, if you like the city building genre, but want a little more of an affinity for uh, the people living there because you also have this little ticker of stories of, of your people being born, you know, going to school, getting a job and then ultimately dying. And, you know, for a strategy game where the people are basically just, you know, 12 pixels tall walking around, you get some pretty great feelings for them. I also love the banner saga. I've been working on a turn-based strategy game. So I picked this one up kind of as inspiration for turn-based combat mechanics and, it's really interesting and different. I think the, the biggest factor is probably that your units have different sizes. So like one unit might be only on one square and you're fighting against an opponent who's on four, who takes up four squares. And I've never really seen that in other games um, as part of the core mechanics. The art and music of that game are also really great. If you appreciate uh, hand-drawn art styles, the Banner Saga is beautiful. It really reminds me of some of my favorite older movies like The Last Unicorn or the original cartoon of The Hobbit, like it has that kind of realistic hand-drawn appeal and it's it's just a great game. It also has this story system where the decisions you make don't fall under either good or bad or, or moral or evil, but they have extremely important consequences and can send your story in totally different directions. So 
I look forward to playing it again because I think it has pretty high replay value because of that. Um, and then the last one that I will give a lot of attention to is Mobius, which is by Pinkerton Road, um, which is headed up by Jane Jensen, uh, who made my very favorite franchise, the Gabriel Knight series of games. Um, Mobius is a pretty great reemergence from Jane Jensen that has the same depth of her older games, but has this great package of a, a very shiny Unity-based um, 3D models and environments. And Mobius also has a really strong story that is just very captivating and engaging. And it also has great character development, which I think is something that can be easy to overlook when it's done right because it's so subtle and complements the story so well. And, and Mobius is a great game for that. You really come to like the main character, even though he's, he's not exactly you know all that likable. Um, the puzzles are really interesting, and I think it, it balances point-and-click adventure with sort of environment puzzles and, and making you actually do more action-based gameplay. So, um, so those would be my top three. I also played Five Nights at Freddy's, which I'll give an honorable mention to just because I kind of like the conversation that popped up around it. Um, I personally don't love the game. I'm not a huge fan of jump scares, and after a while it seems like that's kind of all it is. But I do love that it came out this year with a bunch of other horror games coming out too. And people have really refocused on horror as a genre that can be really deep and interesting and engaging without being lazy and falling into stereotypical mechanics or ideas. So, um, yeah, that, you know, I've played a bunch of other stuff on PC, but I think those are my top choices. You mentioned Gabriel Knight. Uh, just how big a fan are you? I mean, do you happen to have like any cats named after the characters? <laughs> I'm kind of a super fan. I do have a cat named Gabriel Knight, and this seems like a good place to shout out that Sins of the Fathers, the first game in the series, was remade this year um, by Pinkerton Road along with Phoenix Online Studios. And there, I think it must be using the same set of tools that Mobius uses because it has a similar, very polished 3D appeal. But they recreated the original hand-drawn 2D art environments so in a, such a dedicated way. It, you know, for a super fan like myself, that remake was pretty much all I could ask for. I wasn't exactly sure if I should include it as indie because originally it wasn't exactly indie, but now it kind of is. So. Again, I think this is just this is kind of the year of the gray area, not knowing exactly what to call all these games. Did you enjoy the uh, the remake? Because I, I've heard some some mixed. I mean, I'm actually a huge Gabriel Knight fan, and I was really excited for the the remake, and uh, I heard some mixed things. You know, without being able to have Tim Curry back in the cast and Mark Hamill back in the cast, I think those are the the greatest losses from the original assets. I think they did a really good job. Um, I may look at it with rose-colored glasses because I really do love that series of games. And I was just so thrilled to see it get that attention. Um, I was watching it with a bit of a careful eye, and I honestly don't think they dropped too much. That's what I was worried about, was, was what would make it in and what wouldn't make it in. And, and I think, for the most part, they really added to it and didn't take anything away. And you said that you're a Gabriel Knight superfan. Does that include Gabriel Knight 3? Yes, I actually really love Gabriel Knight 3. I, I honestly hope that the next two games get the same makeover in this 3D engine because I think that their stories would really shine. Um, there'll be a little bit more of a departure from the style from the first one because the second game is actually in full motion video and the third game is in very early, very you know low poly 3D. So it would be really interesting to see their storylines and plots be translated in the more modern engine. And I know one of the big efforts they put into this game was just reducing the 
the minutia of things to click on and hear little punchlines about, which I, I don't have too many complaints about that. So I would be very thrilled if they do go on to make the other two. I also really like that company, Phoenix Online Studios. They are very friendly um, on Twitter. I've met um, some people from there at the Boston Festival of Indie Games this year, and I'm just really glad to see them emerging as a pretty major player in adventure game creation. I was thinking of copying directly what they did for Gabriel Knight in that, you know, uh, Read Only Memories 1 is going to be the way it is, and then Read Only Memories 2 is going to be an all FMV <laughs> game. Uh, awesome. And, you know, it's going to be like, we're going to create like an animatronics for Turing, and it's all going to be this giant FMV, and then the third one's going to be all in 3D, but like the rooms are going to be like 80 feet long, <laughs> and the doors are going to be like 12 feet high. Oh, Good, me good memories coming back. <laughs> I really want to get through Gabriel Knight 3. I really want to get through Gabriel Knight 3, but I've had so much trouble with it. And, um, so so I, I unabashedly recommend getting a walkthrough as soon as you start feeling challenged because I think that life is too short to get hung up on weird puzzles that just don't even make any sense. So I have come to terms with referring to walkthroughs pretty frequently as an adventure game player just so that I can get through it and get to the next one. But I think that with Gabriel Knight 1 there really was only a few times when I had to you know like I almost felt challenged and the challenges felt you, you know like genuine and I didn't have to cheat and I think with Gabriel Knight 2 besides the cuckoo clock in the plant <laughs> Um, which was the stupidest thing I've ever seen. Uh, they all made a lot of sense, but I, I, from you know talking to Jen Frank, she was saying that there's a puzzle where you have to put honey on yes, your making face. the mustache for the disguise. It's my favorite puzzle of pretty much any then, game I've ever played. It's just it's oh hilariously God. obtuse, and I really don't know how anyone would organically solve that puzzle. If there are people who did, that's amazing, and congrats to them. I am I am not as good as them at adventure games. <laughs> there is no logic to that whatsoever because you're not you don't even have a mustache on the on the passport. You draw it on. I think it can only be experienced when you play that game. It it somehow really works with the goofy humor style. You know that's another series where I think the characters are just like really amazingly deep, and they're like characters you'd meet in a good movie or a good book, which I think is saying a lot. For a game, and again, these are games that were made in the mid '90s, so you can't even, you know, say that they've evolved and learned so much from the last few decades. I think they were just great to begin with, and the relationship between Grace and Gabriel that builds over the course of the three games is just—it's one of my favorite things of adventure games, um, you know, story-wise ever. So definitely recommend the remake. Again, I'm not sure how indie you can really call it, although kind of an indie effort at this point. Well, are we done talking about a game that came out 15 years ago? Sorry, I didn't even want to bring it up because I'll just, I'll never stop talking about Gabriel Knight when it comes up. Sorry. Can you tell me anything <laughs> about snakes? <laughs> what can you tell me about voodoo? <laughs> <laughs> okay, on that note. Moving on. <laughs> by the way, Emma, you've mentioned a lot of games and yeah. I lost track. Which one did you liken to the 1977 animated film The Hobbit? Uh, the Banner Saga. The art style oh, okay. in that game is really beautiful. It's a tough strategy game so it's not for everybody it's it's pretty you know hardcore mechanics but it has this cool feature where between levels you're seeing this very long wide view of you know amazing epic cities and ruins in the background and oceans and mountains and your traveling party which is actually you know custom based on which guys you're using at the time is walking in the foreground and they're they're so small and the rest of the world looks so epic compared to them and just it was a very immersive, fun game, and I, like I mentioned, I really look forward to replay just because, 
you know, all the supporting assets are so enjoyable to experience and the plot really drastically changes based on the kinds of decisions you make in terms of who will join your party, who will, you know, betray you in the future. And that game also has a Boston connection because the Videri String Quartet, which has performed at Boston Fig, made a music video for the Banner Saga soundtrack. That's awesome. They're great. We saw them live earlier this year. (laughs) That's right. All right. I want to mention some of my favorite computer games before we get to Sabriel. And just to mix up the order, I was surprised by how many computer games I played this year because I traditionally have thought of myself as a console gamer. And the Macintosh, when I sit down, is where I do my work. Like when when I'm in front of my computer, I'm not there to play. But then I launched a podcast this year all about indie games, that being this one. And I had to play a lot of computer games to get the full breadth of everything that's out there. And it seems like most indie games are for computers, at least in my experience, as opposed to console or maybe even mobile, which I don't have a smartphone, as I mentioned. So I played a ton of computer games this year, and there are a ton of honorable mentions. Most recently, this War of Mine just came out from 11-Bit Studios, which some people have described as a game that you don't necessarily want to play, but which you have to play because it shows the stark reality of being a civilian in a war-torn region, which is fortunately something that most of us in America have not experienced. But it's true that we are predominantly exposed to war in video games as something action-packed and almost glorious, whereas this War of Mine shows the other side. Has anybody else played that game yet? No, I had not heard of it until uh, Steve Lubitz mentioned it the other day on one of his podcasts. It has a lot of buzz around it, but I haven't tried it myself. Yeah, I was I was actually reading about it earlier today, and I just it seems a little too dark for my tastes. It is dark, and it deals with some very difficult subjects, and there were times when I had to make decisions in the game that I wasn't entirely comfortable with. At its core, it's a resource management game. You're going out as scavenging, trying to find the parts you need to build things in your shelter, but... Uh, there are occasionally instances where you have to make these difficult decisions, and that shows the reality of war. Another game I really enjoy, which I was surprised by actually, was Super Win the Game, which is the sequel to You Have to Win the Game. A Super Win the Game I would describe as a cross between Metroid, Zelda 2, and Clash at Demon Head. Anybody else tried this one? No. Oh, I'm looking at it right now. This is interesting. Yeah, I actually was... Uh, this is the game that motivated me to figure out how to connect my PS4 controller to my Macintosh. Turned out it was simple. You just plug in the cable that the controller came with. And I've played it for like two or three hours, which for an indie game is about half the game's life at least. And you're just going around exploring all these different territories, finding power-ups that let you climb walls or dive under the lava, go into towns and speak to people and trade the crystals that you've collected to buy power-ups. And it was just a real throwback to the old days. And some people have described it as being a little bit too cliche, as borrowing too heavily from classic games without necessarily innovating. And I suppose I can see that, but it borrowed so well that I really don't have any complaints with it. So that's not my favorite game of the year, but I would definitely recommend it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy it right now on Steam. I like how it's, I mean, it looks like it's directly pulling art assets from, from Zelda 2. And I like that. I asked him about that, and he said he had Zelda 2 pulled up while he was drawing his art, but he didn't actually copy the sprites one for one. A few other Mac games I played, of course I played The Counting Kingdom, which was a fun math-based game, which I generally don't like tower defense, but that one did well by me. A Bird Story from the creator of To the Moon was another narrative-based game, takes about an hour to play, that uses no written or spoken dialogue, just action 
But finally, to get to my actual game of the year, and this one is heavily inspired by nostalgia. I've played it for several hours, and it's one of those rare games that I intend to go back and play and finish, whereas some games I'll play them for a few hours and be like, okay, that was fun, time to move on. This one I see myself returning to until I finish it, and that would be the Kickstarter-backed reimagining of Shadowgate. Has anybody played Shadowgate? Nope. No? <laughs> no? Not like you, so not even in 2014, but not even like back in 1987. None of you ever played. I was gonna say that's a super classic, Ken. <laughs> I know. Like we're we're all old enough to have appreciated the original. Shadowgate. Shadowgate. Nope. <laughs> there are no children of the 90s on this podcast. Come on, work with me here. <laughs> oh, Shadowgate. You know, I've always wanted to play this as a kid. I remember looking at it in uh, Nintendo Power and being like, "This looks so cool." Like, I mean, this is super along the kind of the lines of read-only memories in a way. And, yeah. Wait, so they made a remake of it? Yeah, in 2012, the two original creators, Carl Ruloffs and Dave Marsh, went on Kickstarter, and I backed their project, and the game finally came out for Steam in August 2014. It is roughly the same game, but entirely new art, soundtrack, user interface, refined puzzles, new rooms and levels. It's awesome. Really? I, I, I don't know. If, I mean, looking at the art, and I, I kind of would prefer to play the old one. Why is that? I kind of like that that art style. I mean, like it's so distinct with like the the UI and the the font and the little tiny box with the art in it. And then you know, it's looking at this new one. It looks very. I don't want to say it. It doesn't look nearly as distinctive. Okay, I can I can see why you might say that. I'm gonna have to. I'll I'll try. Which one would you, would you say I should play first? So I wanted to play one of of them. You mean like the original versus the new one? Yeah. Well, given everything you just told me, I would say probably like the original. What about Shadowgate 64? Never. I briefly mentioned that game to some of the creators, and they basically just said, let's not talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I would recommend the 8-bit NES version. However, if you like the... If you want to go to the true original, that would be for the Macintosh, and then there was an Apple II GS version. And they recently released what they're calling Retro Shadowgate, which is the Mac and 2GS versions of those games, but able to be run right in Windows or Mac OS X. Hmm. So you can go to, I think it's zojoy.com, which is Z-O-J-O-I, slash Retro Shadowgate, and you can buy those games for Steam separate from the remake, or you can buy them with the remake. So if you really want, you know, a really crammed interface where the commands and the text are all separate from the images, you can go ahead and play Retro Shadowgate. I will have to check this out. Yeah, 16-bit color or black and white. Hey, Ken, can I throw one more into the ring that I I left off? Because it actually is on my mobile list, but it's also a piece of Because you didn't list enough games already. What was it? What is it? I know, I know. I can't help it. The Last Door, which is a pixel art horror game by The Game Kitchen. I am super excited, again, to see the focus on horror, and I think pixel art is an amazing medium for horror games because um, of how simple the art stays. It kind of forces you to engage your writing and make the writing and the story really scary, and The Last Door really achieves that. It's also a Kickstarter-funded game, so um, they're another one who I've enjoyed just watching their you know growth as a community and responding to fans and enjoying the positive feedback they've got um and that one just came out for ipad so whichever platform you prefer i would highly recommend the last door i remember seeing the trailer for this and thinking this is a little bit too horrific even for me 
No, it's awesome. It's really good. And it, it just toes the line because it, I mean, there's only so, it's not gory. It's not, you know, disgusting or anything like that. It's just really creepy, you know, maybe a little gothic and grotesque, but really well done. Um, I believe the team is actually a Spanish speaking team too. So, you know, to complement its narrative as, as coming out really well, I think says a lot for the game. Excellent. And finally, last but not least, for desktop computer games, Sabriel. Uh, okay, so I have a, a list here too. This is the platform I play the most. This the first my first one, one of my runners up. I didn't even play because uh, I am not a fan of horror games or horror movies. However, I can apparently watch them. And uh, Five Five Nights at Freddy's, I got a second that. Uh, that was just an amazing experience to watch. Let's players play that, especially Markiplier. Uh, you mentioned that game too, didn't you, Emma? I think that game is really appealing as an experience game. Like Sabriel mentioned, watching it and seeing the reactions. I think that personally, I think there's a lot of value in that effect of it. And the game itself is very shallow. Um, it, they did just release a sequel on Steam. So I have a feeling the first one was almost more proof of concept and they probably polished and, you know, maybe got a little deeper with the second one. So, so that one's on my list to try out when I, when I finish all the other things I'm currently playing. One of my other games that I liked, but um, was called Always Sometimes Monsters. It made a lot of headway late spring, early summer. Uh, there was a lot of talk about it. It's a game where you have a protagonist and you can kind of create your own story as you try to win back your love. And uh, I think, well, actually, I've only had a bad ending, or at least maybe it's considered a good ending where I did not succeed. But it was an interesting journey and I had a lot of fun with it. Uh, I thought it was deeper at the time than it actually is. When I look back at it, I'm like, oh, some of these decision trees weren't all that interesting. How did they fool you then into thinking it was deeper? I think I might have gotten caught up in the excitement of everybody talking about it, honestly. But I was also excited, like, oh, I can play a gal who is not a lesbian. Like, yeah, that's part of me. Uh, the game I liked the most, and it may have the benefit of, because it's most recent. It's also a very niche game. It's a pinball RPG called Rollers of the Realm. I've heard of that. It reminded me of Pinball Quest, which came out for the 8-bit Nintendo, but I haven't played this new one. It's um, an RPG where you play a little thief girl who is represented by a ball, and you are just trying to break your way into town, and you come across this drunk knight, and this pushes you into a huge story about how you have to save the world. Turns out, over the course of the game, you meet like 10 different play or people to play as, each one is their own ball, each has their own special abilities and whatever. The RPG elements are kind of like, you have a health meter, which is your pinball flippers, and the more damage you take, the more beat up they get, and you can actually hit back. Like, you'll you lose the ball easier. Uh, I just had a lot of fun with this game, but I know it's really niche because I'm a huge pinball fan. So you like the actual physical pinball tables most of all? Yes. And there have been a lot of Kickstarters to translate various physical tables into digital or mobile counterparts. Are, are you following that trend? Uh, pinball seems to be having a huge resurgence. It's just not on kick, um, not only on Kickstarter, but um, those like new pinball um, companies are coming back, and they're releasing new machines. Like when everyone thought this whole medium was dying, so I'm really excited to see it making this resurgence. Yeah, there's a documentary coming out in 2015 all about that resurgence it's called shoot again the resurgence of pinball and i believe that i believe they've finished filming and they're currently in post 
and it should be released in 2015. It's directed by Blake Fawcett, who I believe was also part of Mario Warfare, which Beatdown Boogie produced, also on Kickstarter. So if that's the level of quality that we're expecting, I don't remember his exact level of involvement, but we are going to be in for a treat when Shoot Again comes out. So keep your eyes on that one. All right, so that closes out our computer game genre, and that moves us on to platform, which when I was outlining this show, I thought would be the heavy hitter of the three platforms, but then I realized that I played remarkably few indie games on console this year. I don't know if that's because I just overlooked them or if because consoles tend to take advantage of all the processing power available to those machines and to 50-inch HD TVs, whereas indie games with their limited development resources tend to be better suited to, say, mobile games with a small screen and smaller resources. Also, I find it hard to identify exactly what is an indie game on a console because they seem to be more likely to have publishers. For example, Activision now has an indie label, the former Sierra Entertainment publisher of King's Quest. They just released Geometry Wars 3, which some would call an indie game, but can an indie game be published by Activision if the definition of indie that you're using is a self-published game? I don't know. It's it's as Emma said, it's the year of the gray space and very much more so in console in my opinion. I think you do have a higher barrier to entry on console, which on the one hand means it is harder for the average indie, you know, based on one person or a very small, less than connected team to get published on those platforms. But once you do get there, I think that, you know, it's a pretty big indicator of quality and you're in with good company alongside the major publisher games and the Sony handpicked games. So I think that can make it a little harder to tell also. I mean, the... The most recent indie game on console I can even remember playing is Slambolt Scrappers by Firehose Games here in Cambridge. And um, once you're playing it on PS3, it doesn't exactly feel like what I think of as an indie game in terms of production value. It's extremely polished. It has great music and art. And being on the PlayStation 3 platform almost gives it a vote of legitimacy. Absolutely. Um, another thing is just there's so much cross-platform. Anything that comes out on console is already out on... Um, PC, typically. And from what I've read about indie production, it seems like games are more likely to make sales and generate revenue for the developer on Steam than they are on Xbox. I remember the creators of Breath of Death 7 and Call of Cthulhu, that being Zaboid Games, this is prior to them getting the contract to make the Penny Arcade on the Precipice of Darkness, Rain's Like Precipice of Darkness games, they released games exclusively on Xbox 360 and, you know, made a few dollars here and there, and then they released their games on Steam and their income just exploded, as did their reputation. And they basically said, we're never going to make a console-exclusive game ever again. It's just not worth the investment of resources. Yeah, I've heard especially on the Kickstarter side of things that if potential backers don't see PC as one of your either your first or one of your very first platforms, that's a huge black mark on your campaign and to the point where I think developers probably expand to include PC if they are going to go on Kickstarter just for that reason. Yeah, it seems like other platforms are more likely to be a stretch goal. Yep. Wow. So with that explanation, I can understand why we might not have many console games to look at. For example, Emma, you were telling me that you had a little bit of trouble in this realm. I played a lot of AAA console games this year, um, but I haven't bought a PS4 or an Xbox One yet. I also have never really been that into 
their online offerings. Um, I'm a little more traditional minded when it comes to the consoles and I, I still kind of prefer getting a retail copy. I just bought Mario Kart and actually went to GameStop to buy the physical copy instead of just getting it digital. So I think for me, that's kind of a handicap when it comes to experiencing indies on that platform. I'm much more likely to pick them up on my phone or my iPad or for PC or Mac than on the consoles. Yeah, that's something I tend to be conscious of as well is especially on Nintendo systems, you are very locked into where and how you can play the game once you download it. And you're a little bit less restricted on PS4 and Xbox One, but still, I, I don't really feel like I own the game. On PC and Mac, I do. I feel like I can take this game wherever I want, archive it, keep a copy of it. It doesn't have to phone home. It doesn't have to register with my specific laptop that I'm installing it on. But with the consoles, it's just it's a lot harder to feel like it's actually yours. So I will go to the store whenever I can and buy the game as opposed to downloading it. It's also like a sweet spot for PC right now because of the generation switch. You know, the PS3 and the Xbox 360 are slow now compared to even average gaming computers. The PS4 and the Xbox One will probably get outpaced by gaming computers, you know, not long from now, if not already. But like for me, I'm a lot more likely to buy PC games this year, mostly just because the consoles I have feel a little dusty and outdated and I haven't made that investment yet in anything but the Wii U, which is a great console, I will say. Yeah, it's one of my favorite as well, but you're right that the popularity and development resources available for PC games tends to be a little bit more consistent, a little bit more linear, because there aren't like, oh, now this is the new generation of computers. It's always incremental. Whereas with the PS4, Xbox One, Wii U, developers are still really getting a handle on it. Whereas we've had computers for decades, and we pretty much, you know, with the exception of some revolutions like the release of Unity, we pretty much have a handle on how to make these games. So we're not really seeing the quantum leap that we do when consoles come out and thus the learning curve that developers have with new consoles as well wow so emma no indie console games for you no i wish i'm gonna have to go and and make a point to try to get some before the end of the year so i can say i played something (laughs) in 2014 so if you play just one you can say it was the best and worst game you played yeah i mean to be honest i really think the the factor of games being on pc first has a huge aspect of it too because I mean, the the indie hits I can think of on PS4 are most of them were already on Steam, like Sabriel has mentioned. I think that that's a, a pretty big defining factor right now is that there isn't platform exclusivity nearly as much now as there was in the previous. And, and the farther back you go, there's more and more exclusivity. So you can you have to assume it's only getting less and less as we go forward. Now, Sabriel, what about you? Any favorite console indie games in 2014? I need to recuse myself from this category. Do you have a conflict of interest? <laughs> oh, maybe I just used the wrong word. I have to... Um, abstain? Abstain. There we go. That's a good word for it. Uh, no, everything I played, uh, or a lot of the games I played this year were ported to it, but again, after I played them on PC. So what is one of your favorite computer games that did get ported, if I may ask? I think by default, I would have to choose, uh, because this is the one I actually had a code for and didn't get a chance to play, but I loved um, when I played it on PC, it was called Aqua Kitty Milk Mine Defender. What? <laughs> <laughs> this is a little Defender clone where you are cats who um, have run out of milk and are now harvesting milk from the bottom of the ocean. While you are doing so, some robotic fish are trying to stop you. Oh my god, I'm looking at the website and the PS4 and PS Vita trailer and the perspective, the 2D side view, reminds me a little bit of the 8-bit Nintendo game Jaws. 
Mm. Yeah, I can see that a little bit. And it also says, awesome chiptune music, taking inspiration from the best of the Commodore 64 and Amiga days. Wow, that makes me want to play this. Uh, give it a shot. I got a lot of play of time with that one. Wow, cool. Well, I'm going to add this to the list of games that I want to play. Thank you. Because, you know, that list wasn't long enough already. <laughs> Honestly. Aqua Kitty Milk Mine Defender for PS4 and Vita. Actually, the website doesn't even... Oh, yeah, there it is. There is a Steam version. For Windows only, that would be one reason I didn't play it. I don't have Windows installed on my Mac. I'm a Mac gamer. Uh, yes. Which, you know, 10, 15 years ago, that wasn't a thing. You couldn't be a Mac gamer. <laughs> it was an oxymoron. You had SimCity and that was Pretty it. much. <laughs> and, you know, five years after everybody else got it. Well, and now the Maxis games don't even come out for Mac at the same yeah. release date like they used to. Uh, oh, well. <laughs> Gotta get a PC, Ken. No, I, I'm I'm good with my Mac. I'm good, thanks. You know, and besides, there, you know, people ask me why don't you have more consoles or why don't you play have more systems or whatever. And I'm like, I am so far behind on the consoles I do have. Why would I want to fall even farther behind? I mean, I don't need more systems on which to buy games that I'm never going to play. That's just a black hole. But thanks for the suggestion, Emma. I appreciate your consideration of my budget. <laughs> All right. Well, what about you, Matt? You know, I, I have a couple uh, games in mind. So uh, first and foremost, I think uh, I was a big fan of D4 for Xbox One. That game is bizarre. Yeah. And it's set right here in Boston. Yeah. Clam chowder, clam chowder, Boston Bruins, A-Rod. That's all you got to know, man. Red that's Sox. The, that's us in a nutshell. Pizza, hot dogs. That's, that's <laughs> basically what happens in the game is like random... It is the most random game ever with, like, some, like, just bizarre... Everything is so bizarre. Like, nothing in it makes any sense. Um, it's probably the only time I've ever played a game using the Connect exclusively that I've had fun with. So that game is bizarre, and I really enjoyed that. So that's probably my favorite game on Xbox One. Uh, another game that came up for Xbox One and PS4 that is great is Super Time Force. Um, oh, I forgot about that game. That game's awesome. So that one's really fun, and I'm really looking forward to uh, the PS4 version where you can play as Yosh P, and uh, he attacks using tweets. Like actual tweets? Yeah, like he's like like wor- like tweets come out of his mouth, and like that's like his gun basically. But like, does it hook into the Twitter API and pull down actual tweets? Oh God, uh, that now that would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that that'd be terrifying. I like that. Well, if they're not already doing it, that idea is free. Help yourself. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll let the copybara people know. So there's that. I think on PS4, probably Towerfall Ascension, uh, and I guess the upcoming Dark World are going to be pretty good. You know, that's a really good party game. Uh, I don't know if Jackbox is technically an indie developer, but I'm a huge fan of uh, You Don't Know Jack, and... The new party box they just released uh, last week or two weeks ago is just amazing. It uh, it has five games on it, and the games can range from two people to a hundred people. And what's really cool about it is you can um, play it. You actually there isn't a way to play it with your controller. You have to play it with your phone. Um, but what makes that really cool is that you know for all these different games you you know you don't have to have four controllers you don't have to have seven controllers you just use your phone. Uh, there's no lag. It works great, and you can play it over Twitch. And all the things that happen on the screen get streamed to people's devices, so they don't even have to be watching the stream to play along. Um, and it doesn't matter if there's a delay. And it's just so much fun. 
I really want to figure out a way to do like a hundred person game of Lyswater uh, at GamerX. It's it's just so much fun. Uh, so the Jackbox Party Box is great for PS4, and I think it's out on Xbox One. Uh, but my console indie game of the year is definitely 100% Duck Game. Uh, Duck Game is just the, probably the best. Uh, I, I, I have more fun with that than I do with Towerfall. I have more fun with that than I do with Smash Brothers. It is the best uh, action game for parties and multiplayer fun. Uh, it is just amazing in every way, and uh, I can't speak highly enough of it. I think the only other time I've heard of Duck Game was on your podcast, Super Bonus Gamer World, when you had that Ouya guy on your show. Yeah. So, I mean, right now it's only on Ouya, so no one's played it. But uh, it's coming out for PC and Steam and all those things relatively soon. Um, they actually, not, they just got, they got, uh, I guess they're getting distributed and published by Adult Swim Games. And um, I'm really looking forward to it. So basically it's a, four-person game where you play as ducks and you go around shooting one another. So it's kind of like Towerfall and it's one-hit one hit kills. But the game just runs super-duper fast. It's super fun, super wacky. The the It's always fun. Um, I don't know how else to explain it. I mean, I would just watch a YouTube video of it. It's, it is just... It's the best. It, it makes... Like, if you don't have an Ouya and you want to play this game, it it makes buying an Ouya alone just for that game worth it. So it's great. Well, I'm still waiting for my Ouya in the mail. It's supposed to be one of the limited edition Reading Rainbow versions. Ooh. I, I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah, I backed it on Kickstarter at a level to get an Ouya, and it's supposed to be, like, autographed by Jordi LaForge. <laughs> As Jordi or LeVar? Uh, LeVar Burton. <laughs> Sorry, I, I tend to think of him as, oh, the guy who played, you know, Jordy LaForge, because I grew up watching Star Trek, and that was, to be honest, I'm not sure I ever actually saw Reading Rainbow as a kid. I watched Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers, and I don't think Reading Rainbow was on my radar. Man, I can remember specific Reading Rainbow episodes yeah. back in the day. That was just, like, such an important part of childhood. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry it wasn't part of mine. Dang it. <laughs> I do have a question for Matt about the You Don't Know Jack game if you're using your cell phone or your, your tablet or whatever, do you need to install an app? No. So, yeah, I mean, that's another great thing is it, it all runs uh, on HTML5. So you just go to jackbox.tv, and then uh, there's like you have to enter a room code, and so it gives you like a, like a four-digit code. Um, and then uh, everyone just goes on there, and uh, you all enter the code, and then you just play. Um, so they have five games on there. One of them is like a drawing game where you have to try to draw like these really silly things on your, like, using your phone. Uh, but you you know you get a very short amount of time and you can't erase anything, so it ends up being really wacky. Uh, it's so much fun. Uh, we 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 got to play it sometime. I think I want to do it on an episode of Super Bonus Gamer World. That'd be awesome. Or like you said, at Gamer X. Yeah, well, because they have a hundred person game, and I would love to do a hundred person game at Gamer X. Or maybe at PAX East. This could be yet another panel we can submit. Yeah. Oh my gosh, because I only have five in the queue right now. Why not go for an even half a dozen? Yeah. Great. Awesome, thank you. I am last for the console game of the year, and like everybody else except Matt, my selections are limited. I am looking at my list, and it's almost embarrassing how obvious the choice is, because my favorite game of the year was Shovel Knight for the Wii U, and I can't believe nobody else has mentioned it yet. I haven't played it yet. Emma, you have a Wii U. I do. I have not played that one. That one's an, that's another multi-platform, wasn't isn't it? Or is it just Wii U? It originally came out, I believe, for Windows, Mac, Linux, 
Wii U and 3DS, and that was it. And then they are now releasing, I think, like PS4 and Xbox versions next year, or at least PS4 for sure. So yeah, they are slowly adding additional platforms, but as far as the consoles go, it was originally a Nintendo exclusive. I've heard great things about it. Yeah. Put it on my list. <laughs> yeah, it's a great 2D side-scroller combining elements of Castlevania 3, Super Mario Bros. 3, and Mega Man. There's a world map where you can choose what level to go to next. You don't really acquire your enemies' weapons like in Mega Man, but you do get power-ups. You get money throughout the game that you can take back to town and buy stuff. You can get additional heart containers to increase your lifespan. I thought it was really fun. They didn't really borrow from those old games so much as they were inspired by them. And I think they actually limited themselves in graphics and audio capabilities to what the original Nintendo was capable of. So it really is 8-bit. But the sensibilities, the design, the UI, it's a game that was obviously made in 2014. Again, full disclosure, I was a Kickstarter backer for this one too. But it was so long ago that I backed this game that I barely remembered backing it because... It took them a while to finally release the game. It was delayed a few times. They did give me a review copy. I was able to play it on my Wii U like five days before it came out. So when everybody else got their hands on it, I already had a complete Let's Play of all the levels published in my YouTube channel. Uh, I don't think that really biased me, though, because if the game sucked, I would not have played it beginning to end. I would have just played the first few levels that I would have been like, eh, thanks for the free copy. Glad I didn't spend any money on that. Uh, but that's not the case. Shovel Knight was a lot of fun, a great 2D game, and it actually it probably inspired me to do one of my most recent Let's Plays, Castlevania 3. I just wanted to go back and play that again, and I can definitely see the difference in how games have gotten you know easier or harder over the years. Uh, there were definitely some things we still had to learn about game design back in the 80s. Who knew? <laughs> What's something in, in Castlevania 3 that really would not fly nowadays? Well, you might say that this is intentional, but especially in older platformers, once you start jumping, you can't change your direction. Ugh. And with Castlevania 3, there actually there were some characters that let you do that, so maybe it was more intentional then, but it made it so difficult to plan your movement when an enemy might fly onto the screen at the last second and knock you back. And also just being knocked back and not having any control over which direction you're going to go in. You might fall into a pit or whatever. Yeah, it was just really, really hard. It was Nintendo hard. Maybe not so much because I found Castlevania 3 to be beatable, which some classic games weren't. But yeah, I, I just I really like Shovel Knight. I might even argue it was a little bit too easy because you have infinite lives. It's just that you lose some of your money every time you die. And But they give you the opportunity to get it back. And so I was never really hard up for cash when I was in town looking at buying those power-ups. Uh, but there is going to be some DLC, new playable characters, a boss mode, a, I think a versus mode. So yeah, there will be more Shovel Knight to look forward to in 2015. Hmm. Yeah. All right, well, I think that rounds out all three platforms among all four panelists. But before we wrap up for the day, I want to add one more category, which is games that we wish we had played but didn't. Doesn't matter who released it or for what platform, just one game each. And it has to be a game that we haven't already mentioned because we've talked about a lot of games that are now on my list of games I want to play, like the Aqua Kitty Minesweeper or whatever. <laughs> so what is a game that we haven't yet talked about that you still want to play, Matt? Whew. So I really want to go back and replay Snatcher again um, because I need to. Wait, that's, that's not an indie game. Well, oh, oh, I thought you meant any game. No, we're, we're still on the indie game. This oh. is the Indie Cider Podcast, not the Snatcher Podcast. This isn't Konami World. Come on. <laughs> Stay with it. Come on. Pay attention. 
let's see, looking at my list here, I still need to really figure out how to play Centris and get into it. That game is still in early access, right? Yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm, I really want to play the full version when it comes out in 2015, but I generally don't do early access stuff, so I'm looking forward to the final version. What came out this year that I really missed? Uh, uh, I want to play Neverending Nightmares. I've heard that's uh, very, very scary and very creepy, and um, you know they were our 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 booth mates at a lot of shows because they also were were doing a, a deal with Ouya, you know. So I never really gave them a, a shot because I was always working next to them, and you know, so I was like, oh, I, I've seen it, you know, every day. But all the reviews say it's just amazing and super scary and, and intense. So I really want to give that a shot. Is that the one with Edward Gorey looking visuals? Yeah. Yeah, I just read about that one today. That looks really pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's like all black and white pencil drawings like you'd find in a children's book, except for occasional splotches of red where all the decapitated bodies are found. I mean, it looks exactly like Edward Gorey. Like, I hope they, hopefully they would, you know, would would admit to that if asked for inspiration. Because when I saw it, I actually was wondering for a minute if it had been licensed, like using actual Edward Gorey art. It's awesome looking, though, so I'll... I'll have to add that one to my uh, must playlist as well. No, that's a game that I saw when they announced it, and I said this is too dark for me. I, I, I'm gonna if if we had a list of games that we didn't play this year and are never going to play, that would be my number one pick. <laughs> no, nothing personal, just not my jam. Yeah. So that uh, I don't know if this counts as indie, but both Child of Light and Valiant Hearts. Looked really good, and I've heard a lot. Oh, of those, those are really up. good picks. Yeah, I, I wish I'd played those. I mean, those are definitely big ones. Well, I think that's enough if you want to leave some for the other panelists. Yeah. <laughs> Don't be greedy, Matt. you got to learn to share. <laughs> and super win the game. I want to play super win the game. All right, that's fair. Good job. Sabriel. Uh, one of the games I want to try, I should go back to, because I played an early beta version of it, was Divinity Original Sin. I have not heard of that one. It's on a lot of people's top lists for this year. Yeah, and it's something I just complete, never went around and got back to playing. What exactly is it? Uh, uh, Wikipedia says it's a single-player, cooperative, multiplayer, fantasy, role-playing video game. It, it's a single-player, multiplayer, cooperative... No. <laughs> it's Thanks. kind of like um, it's like Diablo-ish. It's uh, isometric view. Well, no, you can change your viewpoint, too. Uh, it's, an, it's an adventure game similar to Diablo, kind of. It's not hack and slash. Oh, and it, too, was backed on Kickstarter. Yeah, it's something that just caught my eye. I played a little bit of the beta, and I kept breaking it, so I couldn't do much. And I just wanted to go back and try it out, since so many people are excited about it. Well, it certainly did well on Kickstarter. They were asking for $400,000 and got 944000 So that's 236% of what they were asking for. That was in April of 2013. Glad to see that it came out, and they're, they're living up to the hype, apparently. Neat. Emma, any indie games you want to go back and check out that you missed the first time around? So I think that the PAX 10 this year is a pretty great reference. And, you know, we did talk about The Counting Kingdom and Framed, which are two of the 10 games there. But I've been meaning to revisit that list uh, and check out some of the other ones that caught that panel's eye. But I would say the number one on my list, uh, it only came out maybe a week or two ago, is Never Alone, which is made with a partnership through um, Alaska Native Storytellers and like a, a huge cultural focus on um, authentic folk storytelling. And um, the art is just 
so beautiful. They they were actually a showcase game at the Boston Festival of Indie Games, and unfortunately, I didn't have a chance to check them out there. But I've been following the progress. They've been getting some really great coverage from non-game outlets like NPR and um, sources like that, which I always think it's pretty interesting when a game manages to have a story that cracks out of game journalism and into the more mainstream um, discussion. You know, I was looking forward to playing Never Alone at the Boston Festival of Indie Games this past September, and they were on the map and they had a table, but that table was empty, and I confirmed with them later on Twitter that they had to pull out the last second. So that might be why you missed it. <laughs> I guess that's a, that's a big part of it, yeah. Um, I just think, you know, I'm actually looking at their website right now, and this is one that is another cross-platform. It's um, on both of the new consoles and also on Steam, and just the art is really eye-catching. It's very stark, you know, in a snowy environment. Um, it sounds like it has a pretty amazing story, and, you know, I, I love the direction of having, a, you know, sort of a cultural organization being consulted every step of the way to make sure that it, you know, is held to some higher standards. One of our mutual friends, Emma, Hadija Marenkov, who was on my other podcast, Polygamer, said that Never Alone really needs to be played as a two-player simultaneous game to be appreciated. Yep, I've heard that as well, that it's not broken as a single-player game, but it's better as a co-op game. Yeah, because you are controlling a young person as well as her friend, the fox, and you get to alternate between them as a one-player, but for two-player, you get to, you know, each adopt a role and collaborate to get through the levels and that sounds like a lot more fun yeah absolutely so that one's been on my radar for a while now that it's actually out i no longer have any excuses to have not played it so that's my top one well with any luck i'll have the developer of that game on a future episode of this podcast that would be great the game that i wish i had played although i i the reason i haven't played it is because it doesn't live up to my standards and i hope that they expand the game and that would be crawl it is a four-player dungeon crawler where one person plays the human and three other people play the monsters in the dungeon trying to kill the human. And whoever happens to kill the human, their reward is that they are brought back to life and that they become the human. So it's sort of like a game of tag. Unfortunately, this four-player game is local only. And they actually say that online multiplayer is a possibility for a future version they do acknowledge that but for now it's uh, couch play on windows mac and linux so i'm really hoping that they add some online component or that they port it to a console with inbuilt online multiplayer uh, but i love the art style it's that same sort of 8-bit pixelated look as that other horror game you were mentioning emma who the name i already forgot the last door yeah so it looks like the last door but it's a dungeon crawler it, also, you could say it looks like Swords and Sorcery. Uh, are you laughing at me, Matt? No, what? that was me. <laughs> oh, oh, Sabriel, you're laughing at me? Uh-huh. Why? Swords. Isn't that how it's... No? It's because Sorcery has the W in it, too, in the title. You never know exactly how you're supposed to pronounce it. I knew what you meant. <laughs> I knew what you meant. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. It's Swords and Sorcery. Sorry. But also, that's how they sing it in the song in Aladdin. He says swords. <laughs> and I love that Disney movie, so... You're right, you're right. Don't, I, I'm... <laughs> don't, don't bust my chops, honestly. Man, the person with the Fargo accent making fun of the person with the Boston accent. Thanks. Oh, yeah. Pizza, pizza, hot dogs. Ah, <laughs> clam chowder. Clam chowder. Hot dish. Anyway, hot dish, whatever. That's no a casserole. <laughs> awesome well now that we've devolved into just mocking each other 
<laughs> I think we've been talking for too long. We can't take each other's company anymore. I think that's a good low note on which to end this show. Also, Kentucky Route Zero, I should play. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I backed that Kickstarter, too, and I played, like, the first 20 minutes of the first episode, and I really want to get back to it. Oh, man. So many games. So little time. Way too many games. <laughs> well, thank you all so much for participating in this roundtable. This is an unusual episode of Indie Cider, and I hope it won't be the last of its kind. Let's find out where we can find each other online. Sabriel, if people want to follow you, where should they go? You can go to Twitter at, or I'm at, at Sabriality. Or if you can't spell that, just go to sabriel.me, and there's a link on top. Excellent. And that will give them links to Twitter, Facebook, G+, all your different social media. All over the place. Sabriel, S-A-B-R-I-E-L dot me. And there will be a link in the show notes. Thank you. What about you, Emma? Uh, Twitter is my most active platform, and I am mdroid on there, which is basically like Android, except an E and an M instead of an A and an N. Which is a play on my old blog name, Paranoid Android, which I wrote when I was a GameStop employee and could check out as many games as I wanted to to play. Please tell me that blog still exists. I'm pretty sure it does somewhere. <laughs> I certainly haven't written on it since 2010, so it probably wouldn't be too interesting. But it did get me my very first game industry job because they thought they could read some interesting writing on my personal blog. So, <laughs> Was it hosted on LiveJournal or, or Zanga? On Google. It wasn't that old. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, if it's not there, it might still be in the Wayback Machine. <laughs> I'll let you go on a hunt and find it. Oh, boy. <laughs> That's the next game I'm going to play, then. What about you, Matt? You can find me on Twitter at MattCon, M-A-T-T-C-O-N, N, uh, or you can follow GamerX at GamerX, G-A-Y-M-E-R-X, or you can follow Read Only Memories at R-O-M 2064, uh, and we tweet and do stuff, um, or you can go to midboss.com and you can go to our blog or join our email list and all that fun stuff. Um, if you're listening to this, uh, which I assume you are because you, you're hearing it, uh, we also have a game jam coming up on January 9th through the 11th in San Francisco. And I think that as of this recording, we have about 12 tickets left. So if you want to come join us and make some cool queer games, um, January 9th through the 11th, it's called GX Dev, And um, check it out. And you can find more information about it at GamerX.com. Awesome, thank you. Now, Matt, I don't mean to be juvenile, especially since this is a question you probably get all the time, but I have to ask, if you ever had a child, would you consider naming him Decepta? <laughs> uh, hmm, I don't know. I don't know if I'd want to, like, I, isn't that like a form of child abuse? <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe when they're younger, but then they'll grow up and grow into it. Yeah. Decepta. Would that be a boy's or a girl's name? I got a girl's name. It's beautiful. See? Come here, Decepta. <laughs> it's a child, not a dog. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like some sort of, like, you know, indigestion product. Like, oh, I got an upstate stomach. as some Decepta. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe that is child abuse. <laughs> or maybe some variation on it, like Destructa. Destructicon. I mean, I'll think about it. I'll, th I'll definitely think about it. Okay. All right. Well, you know, put that under your thinking cap. Get back to me. Okay. All right. Well, thank you all so much. I appreciate having met you and gotten to know you better in 2014, and I appreciate your time on this collaborative podcast and look forward to many more indie games and many more podcasts and many more collaborations in 2015. Have a happy holiday. You too. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Ken. This has been Indie Cider, a Game Bits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at IndieCider.net. 
Clam chowder, clam chowder, Boston Bruins, A-Rod, Red Sox, pizza, hot dogs, Noma Garcia Para.